All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor even of gathering together as family with all gratitude towards you in this week of celebration, this Thanksgiving week. Father, thank you for bringing us together once again as family. Thank you for giving us the gospel. Thank you for saving us by it. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture, Father, for this is the very bread of life even, the Word of God. Father, we're so very grateful for life itself, for being given the opportunity to sing your praises in time, to sing hymns and songs even to you, to lift up our voices to you, to lift up our spirits to you. All praise and honor to you, Lord. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this morning for a variety of reasons that so earnestly to be here, earnestly desire to be here with us. We pray that they understand your will in their lives and that our heart is with them. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that you humble them in time. Maybe, just maybe, we're given an opportunity even to sing your praises to them regarding the good news of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for our Lord canceling out that debt on a cross 2,000 years ago and to enable a morning like this even. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message and the goings-on. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part five of what is good and who gets to define it. Uh, I hope I hope you've had the same experience as I've been having um, since the start of this particular series, that it really is the impetus for really good conversations. If you're open to having conversations with other people, other members of the flock, so to speak, um, they're just wonderful because uh, without any guilt or shame or condemnation, you can have some fantastic uh, discussions about what is good. And you might even laugh about it. You might you know, what else are you going to do, right? You can't change yesterday. Uh, this isn't about condemnation. This isn't about, you know, looking back and saying, well, if this is good, then you're just terrible. We already know these things. It's not about condemnation. It's, it's about being open. It's about being honest. And above all, it's about being humble uh, in the eyes of our sovereign Lord. And so there's been a lot of things going on uh, on this topic of what is good and who gets to define it? So I've, I've really been praying for all of you that you are taking the time outside of these four walls to edify each other, to build each other up, to discuss such things with each other um, on this topic. It's just fantastic. And there's a lot of synthesis and a lot of goodness that can come from such activities. So I'm just encouraging you um, to do that with each other. Here's how we began on Thursday. And this seems a little bit direct and but let me see where the spirit takes us this morning god never fails you could stop there and contemplate that for a while um, but in the context of our lessons 
over the past few weeks. God never fails. If his intention is to reveal himself to his creatures, that's what the Bible says, then do you know what? God reveals himself to his creatures, period. If that's his intention, then he's, it's done deal. It's a done deal. The Bible says, therefore, man is without excuse for anyone to say God doesn't exist. They are without excuse. You cannot thwart God, in other words. God doesn't fail. God's always on the winning team. No man has ever not known. The practical side is this. No man has ever not known of his existence. Romans 1.20. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Because some of you have friends and family and co-workers and what have you that say, I don't believe in God. It's okay for you to believe in God, but I don't believe in God. And they try to escape the, the, their own creator. They try to withdraw themselves from under his sovereignty, which is really the, but the definition of folly. It's silliness. It would be like saying, I'm going to withdraw myself from being underneath the sky. I mean, what, what are we doing? The Spirit's been emphasizing a few things simultaneously throughout our lessons. Obviously, what, what is good? That's the question. That's been the sort of tie that binds or the thread throughout the lessons. But also the inerrancy of the Holy Bible. Because if we're going to accept something as the author of what is good, if we're going to seek out the source of goodness, then it's really healthy for us to understand that that source is inerrant. And that is the Word of God. Also, that God is sovereign. That's the other aspect. Not only what is good, but the Bible is perfect, inspired by God, therefore it is inerrant. And also that God is sovereign. And that we ought to take our right position under him. So that's been on the table as well. For example, on the topic of the inerrant word, the Bible is the word of God. You have to think of it that way. God spoke, and this is what we have. And since God never lies, then this is perfect truth. God spoke, and this is what we have. This is his word. So you have to think of it that way. You have to think of the Bible as the Word of God, almost, you know, figuratively speaking, His voice. It must be taken for exactly that, nothing less. As soon as man tries to reduce its perfectness, it is no longer the inspired Word by definition, but rather something pliable. Hebrews 13.8, up here on the board, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that this is the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ is called the Word in the Bible. If you read the uh, blog this weekend, it was on uh, the labels, nutrition and ingredients labels. And it basically said that the Bible comes with its own nutrition and ingredients label. He says, it says, this is what's inside here. The mind of my son, the mind of Jesus Christ is in here. It's the word of God. That's what's in here. 
And you know what? It's the very bread of life. It's good for you. It's nourishment for you. There's a lot of malnourished so-called Christians in this world because they refuse the label on the Bible, what it claims of itself. It's self-authenticating. It says, this is what I am. This is why you have me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Considering the strength of the word, we must also take a step back and let it do what it does best. It convicts people. That's the beauty about the onus of evangelizing someone, let's say, or even Galatians 6, that was a couple of blogs ago, correcting someone. You don't do it because you say, I think you're a moron or I think you're totally lost, or I think this, or I think that. No. Say this. The Bible says, the Bible says, this is what's going on. The Bible says. And now all the weight is on the Bible, not on your shoulders. And that's the beauty about having something inerrant and perfect convict another person. Convict someone else's slave. Do you understand? The idea is not for you to topple someone or get on top of them. That would be sin trying to work through you. The idea is to get somebody to abide and orient to the truth, which is the Word of God. So considering the strength of the Word, we must also let it do what it does best, which is convict people. And for the sake of completing the picture here, we know that the agency that God uses is the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks about Him this way. John 16, 8, and the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So between these two things, just, just put those things together. You have the inerrant Word, and you have the perfect God who inspired it, God the Holy Spirit, convicting people. That's the ministry. That's how it's done. You're just a vessel. Remember that. Nobody really cares, certainly not God, about your opinion. About how you know, you're able to see or judge other people. There's nothing or no one more powerful than the Word and the Spirit in convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so knowing this as believers, we can relax a bit. Doesn't that, it makes me relax a lot. Because it's really easy, especially in this post, it's, it's really easy for a, a, a pastor to get over the top and say, I think you're, you know, this, or I think that. I might have to say those things to, to pique your attention and to maybe irritate you and hit you with the rod and these kinds of things. And I see what I see and I say what I say. But I'm really not interested in holding up the weight of the conviction that is set on you when those things happen. I kind of want to leave it alone and say, hey, listen, if you don't believe me, then go read your Bible. Well, I don't read my Bible. Then what do you want from me? What do you want from me? You just want to throw stones at the guy? You just want to make it about the man? Charles Spurgeon wrote on this. Just sit back for a second. He wrote on the Bible itself, quote, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. 
Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object, and feel that it was humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself, and the best, quote, apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. For obvious reasons, I don't know about you, but that's one of my favorite excerpts from Spurgeon. Just let the lion out. Let it defend itself. Your job is not to fight for the lion. Open the cage. It gives us precious perspective that we often lose sight of, but it delivers us up here on the board more on the inerrant word. Once we understand and accept that the Bible is the very word of God, and that it is the final authority on all things, not just some, like people like to play, all things. That means it governs your whole life. There's nothing that the sovereign in your life, your master, your true master, cannot see and doesn't govern. Not rightfully, anyways. Now, you may sneak out, you may adulterate on him, you may do all the things that the human flesh can do with its volition, with its free will, But nonetheless, it doesn't change a darn thing. This is the final authority. We have it. So once we understand and accept that the Bible is the very word of God and that it is the final authority in all things, then and only then can we press on with full assurance of faith. Now this takes us somewhere, doesn't it? It sort of says there's no more guessing. There's no more, you know, when you, when you begin to doubt and guess, what creeps in? Insecurity and anxiety. And you stop sleeping at night. Why? Because you lost sight of this one pure thing. For some of you, it just means read it. You know, we were just talking about letting the lion out. Let him out in your own soul. Just pick up the Bible and read. And you'll be convicted because the Holy Spirit will be right there with you. See, some of you don't want to pick up the Bible and read because you know exactly what will happen. Your flesh will have to go bye-bye. And so you premeditate the whole idea of not reading your Bible so that you can continue in your sin, whatever it might be. We are crafty little devils, aren't we? (laughs) We are master manipulators, master premeditators, and master justifiers. We justify everything. Oh, this is why I can't read the blogs. Seriously? Seriously? What? Do you need it in Braille? Do you want me to read it to you? Do you need, do you need a dictaphone? Do you need, a, uh, you need uh, nuanced software? you need some, uh, some software that can read to you? 
If you're that lazy, then get the software. I don't believe that's what you need. That's pathetic. Unless you can no longer see words. We just justify everything. And one of the easiest ways to skip out on the convicting ministry of the Spirit is to not pick up your Bible, is to not take the grace coming from this pulpit, from this vessel who has been ordained to equip you. I'll share something I posted on social media the other day while I was thinking about all of this, and it's not mine. It starts with Calvin. Those who wish to prove unbelievers that Scripture is the Word of God are acting foolishly. For only by faith can this be known. In other words, what war are you fighting? Are you defending the lion, or are you going to let the lion defend itself? If someone's given the Word of God and they still ignore it, what do you think you're going to do? Do you really think going toe-to-toe, like so many people do on social media, which is grotesque, do you really think that's going to accomplish anything? It's going to accomplish one thing. You're an idiot. And the whole world's going to see it. I mean, how, idiot, how, how ridiculous is it to, for you, 150 pounds soaking wet, to stand next to an 800-pound lion and say, I've got this. Anybody that's watching that scene is going to be like, is this guy for real? <laughs> is this guy for real? He's making a fool of himself. Yeah, exactly. That's what you do. That's what Calvin was saying. What are you doing? Stop being a fool. Ian Hamilton. But how does this actually work? What does the Spirit do to persuade us that Scripture truly is God's infallible Word? The answer is not that the Spirit gives us revelation in addition to what is in Scripture, but that He awakens us as from the dead to see and taste the divine reality of God in Scripture, which authenticates it as God's own Word. And he quotes Calvin. Calvin says, Our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. So, thinking about that, Think about the alternative and the nature of God's will for His children. If the Bible says it's inerrant, the Bible says it's perfect, the Bible says it's the very bread of life, think about the alternative. So we have a Creator who creates us. And he says, I'm the sovereign, I'm the master. What is a master supposed to do for the slaves? It's his job to take care of them. That's a, master sla- that's a, a healthy master-slave relationship, the one that's depicted in the Bible, not that garbage that our own country was involved in. I'm talking about the true, divine master-slave relationship. You bet that our Lord, our master, wants everything to do with taking care of us because that's what a good master does, takes care of the slave. So just think about that. One of the elements of taking care of a slave, obviously, is to feed them, correct? I mean, if they're going to do good work in the field, his fields, don't they have to be strong and well-fed and nourished? You're not going to get much out of them. It would be opposing things to say, I want you to do all this work, but I'm not going to feed you. 
That's ridiculousness. But that's what some people suggest up here on the board. Do you really think that God would give us his word, demand obedience to it, and then turn around and say, well, good luck with that because it's only man's estimation of my will? In other words, you've got to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm depending on man to feed each other. That's the analog. You really think that a good master would do that? Would say, I want you to do all this stuff for me. I want you to bring glory to me in time. But I'm not going to really feed you. That would be cruel. Something God isn't. God is love. That would be cruel. Put that into perspective. If your perfect master said, I want you to go do all this work, but I'm not going to nourish you. Or it's going to be a guessing game. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's cruelty. That's what a poor master does. Those are the, when we think of the word slave, especially in our country, we, we have, at least for me, we have images of horrible fleshly masters who abused Enslaved people wrongly in the first place and then abused them. We're terrible masters. That's cruelty. But God is not cruel. God is love. On Thursday, to help synthesize the things the Spirit's been teaching us lately, I gave you an analogy. The Spirit's been teaching us the analog to the colors red, blue, and yellow, which we would call primary colors. He's teaching us to see and trust these colors, such as the gospel of Jesus Christ, the inerrancy of the Holy Bible, and the sovereignty of God. These are primary colors, if we're going to run with this analogy. These are primary colors. And as most of us have discovered, myself included, we don't always have them right. They're a little off. Instead of red, it's pink. Do you know what I'm saying? Instead of green, it's like sea green. Instead of yellow, it's, I don't know, something much less vibrant or something. And so he said, let's go back to the primary colors. Before we go mixing colors and saying, oh, look at my beautiful drawing. Look at my doctrines. Look at my theology. Before we do that, let's get the primary colors right. Because the end picture that we're trying to picture, which should be a picture of Jesus Christ himself, it's never going to be good unless the primaries are good because every other color is derived from what? The primaries. So that analog, God has set the primary colors in this universe and they existed long before mankind did. Because they are perfect and true, they are the most vibrant of colors, simple and pure. We're looking at what's good. God's good. Well, what's really good? The primary colors, so to speak. The good news about Jesus Christ, first and foremost. But how many churches, if you look around, don't have that right? How many churches are teaching something that looks like the gospel, sounds like the gospel, uses all the same words like grace and Jesus and what have you, but it's not the vibrant, true gospel of Jesus Christ? And then what happens? Unless you begin with the purest primary colors from the exact same batch or source, no secondary colors will be the same upon mixture. That's the problem. Up here on the board, 
It is absolutely critical that we all agree upon a single standard for our primary colors so that any mixtures thereafter are consistently reproduced regardless of who's doing the mixing. The final point in the analogy was this, that purity begins with inerrancy. In other words, if we want good, pure, simple primary colors, primary doctrines even, then we have to believe that this is inerrant. I mean, I've had arguments in the last, I don't know, six months with people that I care deeply about that don't believe this, but they say that they're saved, and they say that they understand the gospel. And because they don't believe this is the inerrant word of God and not the final authority, their gospel is different than the one I hold to. And I have to say, but then you and I are not on the same plane, my friend. We are not the same Christian that you think we are. We're not the same. Do you understand? Because you doubt the very word of God. Therefore, you've, ply, you've made pliable the gospel itself. You've done whatever you wanted to the one who never changes and isn't about to change now. And you've come up with some other gospel from some other spirit. And I won't tolerate it. I won't sit by the way the Corinthians did. And nor should you. Purity begins with inerrancy. The inerrant word of God gives us our primary colors, it also ensures us that any secondary, tertiary, and so on colors are consistently synthesized from person to person. If we doubt the primaries, we will never unify. And this is the difficulty, I think, today for us, is that we're the ones always saying, I'm not willing to unify. That's the difficult part. It's like a one-way street. We've looked, we turn out looking like monsters because we the world will say that we're separatists, that we're trying to separate ourselves artificially because we, we refuse to accept the false gospel. But everybody else will accept ours, if that makes sense. They'll say, let's all gather over here away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all going to gather away over here in this ecumenical religion thingy, this beast, and you're welcome in. You can come with Jesus Christ. We just call, you know, we just say we're all into God. You can come in. And we say, but we don't want to come in, and you can't come in ours. And they say, well, we see you now. You're a separatist. You're just trying to be better than us. You think you're better than us. You think you're blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, no, I'm just going by what the Word says. The Word says avoid such men as you. That's what the Word says. So I'm avoiding you. I don't care if you don't like me or not. I'm not trying to be a separatist, but I am separate from you. Seemingly, seemingly, as was my Lord. He was so separate, they killed him. They murdered him. He wasn't interested in joining the crowd, was he? No. Nor should you be. Why? At the end of the day, the beauty of, of not doing that thing is we find true unity in the faith. Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ... That's what I'm after. We're not going to find that in some ecumenical hack religion. Let them call you names. Let them call you out. Let them say whatever they're going to say. That's another thing that's been on my heart. I'll probably write a blog someday. One of the first things people love to do, and Scott had to deal with some of this recently. One of the first things people do when they disagree with you, they give you a name. They give you some name that's derisive this derogatory, this negative. And you do realize Christians in the beginning was that way. 
the word Christians. It was not a, you know, a good word. It was like, oh, you're one of those Christians. You know, some of you know this. Oh, you're one of those born-again people. Oh, you're a separatist. Oh, you follow that, and they put some name on some doctrine and try to wrap you up in it and then crumple you up and throw you in the garbage. You see? Who cares? Let them do what they got to do. If they persecuted him, you know what? They're going to persecute you. But if we do obtain the unity of the faith, the results are fantastic. As the word says up here in the board, Ephesians 4.14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. That's what's out there, all of these things. Every wind of doctrine. People change their minds. I mean, look at Hollywood. Half the time, they're like, okay, I'm a Buddhist now. Next, next week, okay, now I'm going to be a Zionist. Now I'm going to be a Christian. Now I'm going to be a Jew. Now I'm going to be a, a, a Hindu. Now I'm going to be a... What is going on with you? Now I'm going to be a Scientologist. Now I'm, it's like, what are we doing? This isn't like this, you know, uh, what do you call it? Potpourri, not a potpourri, a um, cornucopia of religion. You just get to go, hmm, I think this week I'll eat an apple, and next week I'll eat an orange, and the week after that I'll eat a banana. That's not how it works. Having a single point of unification is one of the great results of being given the inerrant word of God. That's the beauty of it. You see? Having, if this was slippery and it was, you know, uh, you know, um, discernible by men and, and, and translated, interpreted, able to be interpreted differently by men, all this kind of thing. And I'm not saying we don't do that in our own, but I don't want to get into that. You know what I'm getting at. If this thing wasn't the rock itself, if it wasn't steadfast, if it wasn't perfect and errant, what do you have? What are you going to unify on? So one of the beauties of the inerrant word in, in clinging to that with your very soul, with everything you are, is that you find unification there. We can all agree, regardless of our lives, you could come here from, you know, like the Gregory's an hour away. Or you could come, like I do, eight minutes away. And we have different lives. But you know what? We unify on this. And that's the beauty of it. Having a single point of unification is one of the great results of being given the inerrant word of God. And I was thinking about this in practical terms, what's worse? Just think about this, and you probably know, I'm sure you know people like this, or maybe it's you. What's worse than dealing with someone whose mind changes daily about this or that? This is like the most frustrating thing ever. Someone who says one thing one day and just the opposite the next. What's worse than that? Ask yourself, how much do you trust people like that? How much do you trust people that day to day their mind changes? They say one thing today, and then it's something else tomorrow, and it's something after that. Does that not just sound like the children we just read about being tossed by the waves, by every wind of doctrine? Satan goes, and the wind in their sails takes them that way. And the next day he goes, and the wind in their sails takes them that way. And you're supposed to be filled your sails are supposed to be filled, pleuro, by who? God the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled. 
And he'll never lie, so you always go true north. There's nothing worse than watching somebody do this and this and this and this. And they say, hey, jump on my ship. I know where I'm going. <laughs> no, you don't. Today you're going this way. The next day you're going that way. What, what's it going to be? How do you trust somebody like that? You really don't. Is that fair to say? You don't trust people who can't make up their mind. Who do you go to? You go to people with real convictions, with that big I word, integrity. You don't even have to agree with them all the time, but at least you know where they're going. It's why beyond the obvious aggravation of dealing with a liar, we despise liars because we cannot unify with them. Sometimes you really do want to unify with someone you care about. Maybe I'm talking about someone you care about. But you can't get it. You can't, what are you, where are you at right now? Because today you're this way, tomorrow you're that way. The day before today, you were, yesterday you were that way. They could call that, right? The day before today was yesterday, right? <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, yesterday you were this way, today you're this way, tomorrow you're probably going to be something else. What are we doing here? I'm trying to, like, build a relationship with you, but you're like a moving target. I can't, because you're always moving. You can't make up your mind. How do I unify with that? You can't. But if we all agree to unify at this place, we're all good because this never moves. That is one of the most frustrating things on earth. But it's commonplace now. I mean, you know, it's whatever is, what do you call it, in vogue. That's why people are changing all the time. It's whatever's in vogue. And people are such idiots. It's whatever's on the cover of In Vogue magazine. Is that a magazine? I don't know. Or GQ or Cosmopolitan or all the... They just basically follow all these things. I mean, uh, what do you call it? Uh, high style? What do you call it, though? High what? High fashion. Yeah, High fashion is a gag, right? You guys know that. It's a joke. It's literally one of the great maneuvers that Satan has put in front of human beings because they all chase it. It's ridiculous, bunch of little dummy rabbits. And he just, he just moves the carrot around. He just puts a different color carrot on the cover of these magazines or on commercials or wherever it is you get your ridiculous media from, right? And you guys follow it around. It's the biggest joke going. And not only that, people pay handsomely to be led astray. That is the goofiest thing of all, isn't it? Last time I checked, this is free. Okay? Most of you, myself included, Jones in New York, okay? I know I paid some extra money for it, even though I got it at Marshall's for probably like $5. If it wasn't a Jones of New York, it probably would have been $3 or 2 or whatever it cost to make plus a little profit so the person could make a living. But I bought it, and I probably did look at the tag because I'm an idiot. I mean, that's me, and I got the teeth for it, right? That's me. You guys do it all the time, too. And what the Spirit's saying is, cut it out. What are you doing? We don't unify that way. Matter of fact, that's how we run into each other. One is going, and the other one's going, and you get your head down, and you hit each other, and butt heads, and it's ugly. And it's really frustrating and counterproductive. The inerrancy means integrity. Inconsistency in lies ruin trust. A person who speaks consistently and reliably holds up a certain integrity to their essence. God is our perfect example. 
Again, inerrancy means integrity. Inconsistency in lies ruins trust. A person who speaks consistently and reliably holds up a certain integrity to their essence. It's who they are, in other words. You know, that's the old, the old secular Proverbs. You know, that uh, integrity is doing the same thing when no one else is looking. It doesn't really matter. It's who you are. You do what you think is right. And in the eyes of God, that's how you live by. And that's how you should be. You shouldn't be like a chameleon like a lot of you are. Depending on who you're with, you're a completely different person. That's garbage. God sees it. You know it. What are we doing? God is our perfect example. So reflect on this. It's why most people would rather submit to an authority that has an integrity than one that doesn't, even if they prefer the policies of the latter over the prior. I mean, how, you know, I try to tell Sean this, you know, and I've tried to teach Joey it, you know, if you're ever going to lead somebody, you have to lead with who you are. Don't try to copy somebody else because you're not that person. You'll never be as good at being someone else than they are. Do you understand? But you can be the very best you. So lead. Be yourself. Then I, I texted that to you last night, right, Sean? He went to the homecoming dance last night, and I said, be yourself. Have fun, but be yourself. Make sure you be yourself. Seriously. Make sure you be yourself. Then I got pictures, you know, he's like... I no, didn't do it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He had like his tie around his head. I'm like, what are you doing? He's on his knees playing air guitar. I'm like, whoa, that's not you. None of this happened, by the way. I haven't even seen one picture yet, even though I asked. <laughs> Be yourself. That's what integrity is. And when you're yourself, you ready? That's when people will follow you. If they know that you are the real deal, even if they disagree with you on certain points, they'll follow you. Why? Because you're real. You're the real deal. That's how strong integrity is. Who's stronger than our perfect master? If this is inerrant, and this describes our perfect master, it is the word of God, he is the word of God, who's got more integrity than this? He's never changed. He's never lied. Our Lord is our perfect master, and a master like him desires for his slaves to trust him implicitly. That's why he revealed us, revealed himself to us. He doesn't expect that they will always want or even agree with his decisions or his commands even, but he wants them to trust him. He knows you. He knows that you're not always going to agree, right? But he wants you to trust him. Such is the value of knowing that the Bible is the very word of God. A word that we can trust with all our hearts, minds, and souls. Up here on the board, Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he wants. He wants you, he wants you to have implicit trust in his word. So much so that you love him. Because he first loved you. 
Why? Because that's when you get to relax. That's when what we perceive as pressure just melts away. There is no pressure when all the pressure is held up by this. The pressure goes from your shoulders to the word. It's like, ah, right? It's like when you're trying to get that last rep up and the guy above you goes, let me help you. And you're like, ah, nobody. (laughs) Bad example. I'm a guy. Sorry, ladies. Whatever you guys do, squats or donkey kicks. What do you guys do to, I don't know. You know what I'm saying, Jane Fonda days. Funny story, though. Not that this matters at all. My mother had a Jane Fonda tape when I was a younger kid, and I was a, uh, a, the MVP of my track team. I'm just saying that in humility, just to give it context. I did it, and I almost passed out. I'm like, what is going on? My abs are like dying. I'm like, oh, I didn't want to say nothing. I'm like, oh, I just crawled up to my room. What is going on? Anyways, I had no value whatsoever. <laughs> How will you do this? How are you going to love God this way or others this way if you don't trust God's word? If God's not who he says he is, who he revealed himself to be in the word of God, how is any of this going to transpire? That's the point. That's the beauty of having the grasp of the inerrancy of the word of God and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. That's the beauty of it. You lock right in. You say, he's master, I'm slave. He's perfect master. He's going to take care of me. And all I really want to do is serve him. What a wonderful thing. The world tells you, "Uh uh-uh, Tashuka, get out from underneath all authority and be your own man or your own woman and establish your own mark in this world as your own sovereign. And that's when you're out there and you're like, "I, I can't, I'm going to pretend it, I guess. And in your pretense, you're miserable. Because you're trying to be the rudder on the ship, and you're trying to blow, you know, someone, you're trying to be the spirit, you're trying to be the word, you're trying to be the father, you're trying to, you get this entire counterfeit trinity going on. So how do you do any of this if you don't trust in God's word? God would never ask such a thing unless it was based on his own veracity. We have to consider the Holy Bible as perfect and nothing less. I gave you this on Thursday. In terms of perfection, is that back door open? I can hear something. Or is the door open, Todd? The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. Think about that. Put that in perspective. The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. This is perfection, as is the very mind of our Lord and Savior. And you can trust it and you can trust Him. Where else are you going to find that? Where else are you going to derive trust? From your spouse? Please. From your neighbor, please. From your best friend, please. Where are you going to derive trust? From you? You know how wretched you are. That's, a, that's folly right there, isn't it? You can't even trust yourself, can you? The beauty of perfection is that you can trust it. When you understand these things, something wonderful happens in your soul. That is the point. To your everlasting benefit up here on the board. 
When you fully accept that the Bible is the perfect expression of God, who cannot lie and whose will is to justify, sanctify, and glorify you, ultimately, your faith becomes like, not the same as, the author and perfectors, Hebrews 12.2, rock solid. You can see what the Spirit's trying to do. He's trying to tighten the drawstring, right? He's saying, let's, let's tighten this thing. Let's, let's unify. Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's all depend on this. And stop listening to the world. Read the, 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 read the ingredients label. Read the nutrition label. Understand what the Bible says about itself. It's self-authenticating. And as Calvin said and Hamilton said, listen, it's not even our job. If we just read it, if we present it to people, God the Holy Spirit, His entire ministry is to help us understand it, is to convict us of sin and righteousness and goodness even. So all we have to do is get it. Feed ourselves. Eat. Right? Just eat. It's like when you're a kid. Oh, that tastes bad. You get the flu. Mom's trying to shovel something in your mouth. But it tastes ter terrible. And then the next day, you're like, thanks for giving me that because I feel better. But at the time, you don't want to take it. That's, you know, don't always taste good, right? I know this. I can see it on your faces every Sunday. You guys are like, Ugh. Is there going to be like one Sunday that he's not like this? Here's where we get back to what is good and who gets to define it. We've already seen our answer several times now from the pulpit. God is good, and God knows good. If we're going to seek him out, then let's seek the truth. We read the creation account in Genesis 1, verse 31a. said, God saw all they had made, and behold, it was very good. And so we started looking at this thing that theology, uh, uh, theologians call general revelation as opposed to special. General being his creation specifically. Well, he created, he created creation and said it's very good. And even in Romans 1, he even witnesses to himself through creation so that we're without excuse. So that's good, right? It's good to know God. It's good to know that God exists. It's good to be confirmed. As we know, the first two humans in our history were duped by the oldest trick in the book, and we sort of talked about this a little bit in more detail on Thursday, but here's the highlight reel. The oldest trick in the book, literally, is the one that the first two humans fell for in the garden. Question God's perfect goodness, his veracity, in other words, his inability to lie, his loving kindness, his truth. In other words, put him on trial. That's the oldest trick in the book. Put God on trial. Master, slave, sidestep just a little bit to see around him. What's he hiding behind the curtain? Right? What's in the big house on the hill? I'm always out here in the field. What's he got in that big house up there on the hill? And you go up to the window and you look. And you see things and discover things. You don't need to see because you can't even put them into context. You're not God, so you can't absorb everything that he knows. He says, trust me, I'm taking care of you perfectly, just the way you need to be, just the way I designed you to be taken care of. Nope, I'm not satisfied. And the serpent comes along in the field and says, Psst, he's hiding something. There's more. He just doesn't want you to know. 
That's the oldest trick in the book. Literally. We consider the following ways as to how each of us has followed this pattern of being duped in our own lives. And these are just ways to get you thinking critically about your own life. Ways we fall for the oldest trick. Not the only ways, obviously, but general enough to get us all thinking. We grope for self-made, quote, blessings instead of waiting on God's timing. That seems to be one. Nobody has patience. So we basically make up our blessings. I want this thing. God's not giving it to me, so I'll go to the world. And then I'll just tell my Christian friends, it was a blessing. God loves me so much. Look at how he's blessed me out. We willfully disobey the word. Uh, We see it, and then we just go, hmm, I don't like it. So I'm not going to read that chapter anymore. See? We justify ungodliness by perverting primary colors. God forbid we do it with the gospel. We just change doctrines here and there to suit our fancy, if you would, our taste buds. And then we premeditate the whole thing and much, much more. The oldest trick in the book, to put God on trial. That is the oldest trick in the book, to question God's will for you, even his activities in your life, where he's placed you, who he's placed you with, who are your parents even, who are you born into. I mean, some of you are like, oh, man, my parents are terrible. Whatever. God knew that's what and who you needed to be born under. So stop complaining. Either that or you think he's a, a liar. That's I was thinking about that today. I almost made that post today somewhere too. Almost every naysayer of the Bible starts off with, how can a loving God, you fill in the blanks. And that's always their foray, and it's garbage. It's disgusting. It's garbage. But the Bible prophesies of such things. Go to 2 Timothy 3.1. 2 Timothy 3.1. The Bible prophesies of all this stuff. It's not like this is novel, right? I mean, if it's the oldest trick in the book, then it's been being perpetrated ever since. I mean, the serpent's still around. His demons are around. Your flesh is around. The world system is around. Those are our enemies. 2 Timothy 3.1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, just that right off the bat, right? Think about God. Think about the point that was on, our, on the board earlier, the oldest trick in the book. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, just to put that in context of our lesson, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, something else, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these up here on the board. And he didn't let us slip out, did he? He didn't let us slip out the side. I know the context. You know the context there. We're talking about false teachers infiltrating the ancient church. But we know that all of us can carry false doctrines. What should be pearls, instead they're bombs. Make sure you aren't one of the men in question. Make sure you're not propagating false doctrine. Make sure your primary colors are good, at least to whatever degree you can understand them. 
But don't make the mistake of trying to twist them and pervert them to suit your liking. This warning may be to your new self as you look in the mirror. I mean, you may hold up the mirror and go, oh, man, I'm one of those people. I've been calling something good that's actually not good. I've been actually portraying myself on false doctrine, living by it so the world can see, and then justifying it. Have you ever taught someone a false doctrine in the name of Christ? I have. God knows this, so he cautions us. Go to James 3.1. James 3.1. I certainly have. I mean, what do you want me to say? I'm imperfect. I mean, what do you want, you want me to tell you I'm perfect? Because well, I'm not. James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect or oh, mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because it's quite the office. We're not perfect, but it's quite the office. Or have you ever shown someone a lifestyle that speaks more of the devil than Jesus? I have. I'm pretty sure I do that all the time, too. And people know I'm a pastor. And I still do it. Why? Because I'm weak. I mean, I'm not. Don't get me wrong, I'm not out there, you know, looking for stuff, ridiculousness. But I'm weak, and it happens. I'm just being honest. And if you're honest, it happens with you. Have you ever held on to bitterness deep down inside so long that it began to rot you from the inside out? I have. Something Job alluded to as a function of evil. Go to Job 20, verse 12. Job 20, verse 12. Have you held on to bitterness? It's an amazing thing that we do. We hold on to bitterness. We point people out. We say, this is why they don't deserve mercy. They're just awful and blah, blah. And then all we have to do is think about the cross. And then think about our own lives. I mean, how much have we been forgiven? And we're not willing to forgive another human being? That's ridiculousness. But that's the flesh. Job 20, verse 12. Have it held on to bitterness to where it rots you out from the inside? Though evil is sweet in his, the wicked man's, mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he desires it and will not let it go, but holds it in his mouth, yet his food in his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras within him. That doesn't sound good, does it? That sounds like you're going to have a big old bellyache. Why? Because you won't vomit it out. You won't let it go. Let it go. Let it go for you. So someone's wronged you. Do you know how many times you've wronged the Lord? Today even? And you're going to hold something over someone's head? And what purpose is that going to serve? Other than to rot your stomach, rot you out from the inside out. Ah, joke's on you. You know what? As vile as we can be in our flesh, God knows all of these things. Always has. And to prove to you that he does, and that you can trust his judgments against the existence of such things, he tells you he knows. 
He says, you're not hiding anything from me. I see everything. I see your rotten stomach. I see what's hiding under your tongue. I see you perched out waiting in the shadows for your so-called enemy. But you, my friend, acting that way are an enemy of me because that's not mercy. And the one who is not merciful does not receive mercy. So says Scripture. So I'm not going to show you mercy. I'm going to let your stomach rot out because that's exactly what you deserve because you're not showing mercy to another human being. So you're not going to get any in return. And as a matter of fact, because you know better, because I've taught you these things, it's going to be worse for you. So go ahead, keep, keep holding on to that bitterness. Keep it under your tongue. Wait for just the right time, you know, five years from now, and see what your innards look like. And you tell me, after all that, who won and who lost. So he tells us he knows. And then he chooses to impart divine wisdom to us so that we begin to see things as he does with divine clarity. Such as the contradistinction between the tongue of man and the tongue of God. The tongue of man versus the tongue of God. Concentrate. I've been doing this a lot of thinking as well. And it has everything to do with this. Think about this point on the board and relate to it at every level, including God's Word. A man's Word is everything. Everything. If, if you shake hands, you look at someone, and I'm saying man and woman, if you, sh if you shake hands, look at someone in the eye, and you want to engender trust, and you want to keep that trust, then you know what? Your Word is everything. Everything. I recently had a contractor come to my house, not DJ, and seal my driveway. And before I hired him, we stood in the driveway for a while talking about the job, the cost, etc. And as any good salesman does, he engendered some trust in me towards him by telling me that he was a third generation asphalt man. Local. That his grandfather and his dad built this local company from the ground up decades ago and that the family name and reputation meant a lot to him and he kept using the phrase sir you have my word you have my word come to find out his word didn't mean all that much he kept making promises and then would break them I say didn't you just say like nine times I have your word I won't get into the details, but suffice to say, I've concluded that this man's word isn't something I can trust. And sure, I might say that his word is no good. Now, there's few things in this world that someone can say about you that might actually be true that's more um, damaging, distressing, um, you name it, than for someone to say your word is no good. And you've, they have every reason to, let's put it that way. Your word is no good. I might say through my experience with this individual, at least in that front, on that front, his word is no good. And that's really bad. 
Now, to put this into perspective of our studies, God's word on his word. God says that his word means everything to him. Do you understand? He's of the same mind. He said, I'm a man of my word. And I want you to know that. That what I say, I cannot lie. What I say is true. If he says, you have my word, that's like saying here. You have my word, sir. Do you understand? Everybody that's ever received the Bible, received the word of God, that's God saying, you have my word on this. You know what's beautiful about that? Beautiful about perfection? You can trust it. That's what the Spirit's been teaching us. God says that His Word means everything to Him. And as such, it ought to mean everything to us. One last point on the value of a man's Word, or even the power of it. Go to James 3.3. 3. James 3, verse 3. You're better off not saying anything. You know, we've studied out vows before. You're better off not taking a vow or making a vow at all than making a vow and breaking it. Just shut up. Seriously. Stop making vows. Stop making promises. Stop committing when you know you can't keep the promise. Stop making vows that you cannot keep. We see the world has nothing. The world doesn't care about vows. Or any of that. They just, you know, the tongue, the human tongue? What comes off of it? Whatever is good for the flesh, for the most part. James had something to say about the tongue. James 3.3 3 and the severity of it, if you don't bridle it. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human, the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless, evil, and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Oof. You see the distinction between God's word, which is perfect, and the natural tongue? When I read this passage, I'm so aware of the difference between the inconsistency of what comes out of man's mouth and the perfect consistency of what comes out of God's. If that's the tongue, and we all have one, and sometimes it gets a little unbridled, and we say and do things for our flesh's sake. I mean, every time we do that, it just proves to us again how perfect God is, and how much and how grateful we ought to be that we have a Savior. So the point on the board, again, God's word on His word, God says that His word means everything to Him. 
And as such, it ought to mean everything to us. The point is, and I'm going to pick a spot to close now. The point is, we must first trust fully and implicitly the Word of God. Why? Because it's in the Word that we find our definition for what good is. That's what we're after. He said, before we even proceed with this question, I want you to understand a few things first. I want you to understand the inerrancy of the, of the Bible. I want to know, I want you to know, I already know, says God. I want you to know if you're the one, one of these people that's sort of sidestepping the Bible a little bit. The one that doesn't open their Bible because they're afraid of what they're going to learn or what they might be convicted of. That one. Are you that person? Are you spending your time in the world on the plans of the flesh? Because the Bible says that Man has plans, but they lead to destruction. They're not God's plans. They seem right to a man, but they're no good. Is that you? Or are you actually opening up your Bible? Are you actually taking in the Word of God as being taught from this pulpit? Are you reading the blogs? Are you taking the encouragement from all those sources to continue on in your own walk? I guess if you trusted the Word of God... With the label and the nutrition label and the ingredients, it says, this is what's good for you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father through me, first and foremost. And then he says, I am the very bread of life. No one will hunger or thirst if they partake in me. Do you believe that? Do you? People are nodding their head, but I could take you right back right now in my office and say, you don't really believe it because I can point to this, 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 this in your life to prove that you don't really believe it, at least not ubiquitously at least not in every part of your life, because you have your little favorite areas, don't you? Some of you are going to go home and have a few too many brewskis today. Some of you are going to go home and, I don't know, smoke some weed. Some of you are going to go home and smack your kid around. I hope you don't do that, but you know what I'm saying. Some of you got, why well, some of you just laughed. I don't know what to think about that. Some of you are going to go home. <laughs> some of you are going to go home and do all kinds of ungodly things. Go on the internet and look at porno. I don't know. Some of the guys are like, mm, 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 mm. Some of you got to do all these crackpot things, right, that have nothing to do with God, are completely unhealthy. That alone proves that you don't trust the Word of God, at least not implicitly. Right? I know that's fair. Is that not fair? Yeah, that's, that's the way it goes, and that's what He wants out of us. He wants humility. He wants us to be honest. He already sees everything in our lives. He just wants us to see it so that we can be convicted. We must first trust fully and implicitly the Word of God. Why? Because it's in the Word that we find our definition for what is good. And we realize that the author of goodness is God, and only God. And in light of this reality, we must discern our own existences, our own lives, not by just what we say we believe, but as Jesus would intimate what we do. Here's some critical thinking that Christ's Spirit gave us to chew on. This has been a recurring slide throughout the last couple of weeks now. The, quote, good litmus test. It is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. That is what he's been asking of us. Look in the mirror. Look at your own life. Is it good? Are the things you cling to, 
Are they truly good? Are they from God? Is God the author of those things? Or did you manufacture them? Were they manufactured and then fed to you by the world? It's pretty sobering if you take the time to do it. We might quickly realize that we, or what we think and even act upon as good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem or celebrate in ourselves or others. And I'll close this way. So goes the fundamental friction between God and man. All God asks is that you recognize that He is perfect and sovereign, and you are not. That He is inherently good, and you are not. And you need His help to change that. These are the primary reasons why He has revealed Himself to us. He's sovereign, you're not. He's perfectly, inherently good, you are not. And we need Him, my friends, more than ever. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for always being so forthright with us. We know you love us. We know, Lord, that you are a perfect master, that you've given us the Word of God to correct us, to reprove us, to encourage us as well. We have the rod and the staff. We have spiritual gifts given to us to equip us, so that we might become mature in the faith. Father, help us increase our faith. Deliver us. Our gratitude is always with you for doing so. To whatever degree and whatever measure of faith you give each of us as individuals and as a congregation. We just ask for your blessings as we take all that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs these things so desperately. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.